CorporalNetwork.com. This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Noblemate Games, where Out of Print is available again. And listeners like you, thanks for using the Tome's Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate links. Welcome to the Tome Book Club. The Tome is a D&D news review and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm your co-host, Jeff Greiner. In each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related book, spoilers be damned, in full book club style. And our book for this month is the second half of Hamlet's Hit Points by Robin D. Laws. And joining us for this episode's discussion is our reigning champion, Eric Paquette. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. And uh, later we'll be joined by the author, Robin E. Laws himself. In June of 2013, we read the second half of Hamlet's Hit Points by Robin D. Laws. It is a book that examines how gamers can deconstruct well-known stories in order to learn how to tell better tales at their own table. But before we get into that, if you want to join us on this or any other book club discussion, uh, please don't hesitate to contact us. Uh, Send us an email or voicemail message to be included on the episode to the tome show at gmail.com or call our business line 919-BIZ-TOME that's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E and you can also always let us know that you'd like to be a guest and if there's room we'll welcome you on now before we get into our uh, our book club book of this month we should tell you about our sponsor Noble Knight Games our pick for this episode is Over the Edge a game by Jonathan Tweet and our guest and author for this uh, episode Robin D. Laws uh, this book is also referenced Uh, a few times in Hamlet's Hit Points. Uh, That said, it was chosen and picked not by me or Tracy, but Eric picked it. So, Eric, what is Over the Edge? Over the Edge is basically conspiracy horror. Uh, Take take an island in the Mediterranean, put every single conspiracies that you can pretty much think of, aliens and songs, crank it up to 11, and basically you have the the, the surface of this weird, strange island set in the, in the 80s. And you go out and explore. It's it's a very narrative-based that, that does sound crazy, though. If you take every single you know conspiracy theory, throw them into one spot, and then you also said it's in the 80s? Yes, well, it was... <laughs> it's, 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 uh, in 2012 was the 20th anniversary, hmm. and... It was p- published in 1997 with this version. Mm-hmm. So, but it's the technology is basically set up in the, the mid 80s. Cool. So, all right. Well, people should check that out. And if you head over to Noble Knight, you can get it for twenty five dollars. Uh, well, out of uh, or, or long time ago printed. Um, so, uh, Noble Knight specializes in finding you those games. Check them out and let them know that Tom Show sent you. Noble Knight is a long-standing game store specializing in finding out-of-print games while also offering the newest great releases. Including D&D? They got it from any edition. That's right, all of them. What if I want a board game? Card game, minis, or dice? Noble Knight has it all and at a discounted price. In fact, Noble Knight has over 30,000 unique items on stock. And you know you can trust this Better Business Bureau accredited store with a satisfaction guarantee. Yeah, but I've bought too many things over the years. How can I justify spending even more? Good thing we're talking about Noble Knight, then. They'll buy your old gaming things and offer you cash or trade, so you'll be able to keep up with all the great gaming stuff you want. Check them out at noblenight.com. Wow, I'll go today! And be sure to tell them the Tome Show sent you. All right, it's time to get into the book. Mm. So the second half of Hamlet's hit points. What do we think? It was cool. I managed to rewatch to actually watch Casablanca, so I can follow Casablanca and figure out what plans for the second for the two, one of the two stories. Do you, do you have an advantage in uh, Casablanca because of the language? Uh, <laughs> it's French based, right? It's it's set in well, set in magic films. There is French films, but there is the movie is not really French. No, no, no. So. <laughs> it's American, but by, uh, yeah, easily. But but it, yeah. but it references uh, French, and there's a lot of French names. Yes. So, but 
I, I continue to have the experience of having not seen or read any of the, the stories referenced. Uh, I was contemplating, you know, if, if I were to uh, have picked, you know, uh, cherry picked a few things that, that I think would have made it easier for me to access this concept, um, it would have been, you know, maybe pick a, an HP Lovecraft story. Um, for the the Cthulhu fans out there, and then maybe uh, pick one of the the Lord of the Rings books, and then you also have a book which you know you only have the two other mediums, uh, movie and and play um, represented here. But I, we also talked to Robin about why he chose what he did, and, and and it makes sense. It's just sometimes you know when the most contemporary thing on the list is more than fifteen years older than I am, uh, it just makes it a little bit harder for me to access it. Okay. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that that said, I found the, these two a lot easier to access than uh, Hamlet. Yeah, yes. I, I could have seen an argument for something like Fight Club because we also talked we talked to him about it. And part of the problem with picking more uh, geek affiliated stuff with mm-hmm. the whole, it's a little too close to the people reading it. Sure. Um, but the other thing is, I I, I feel like picking a book would have been difficult <laughs> because books are so much longer. Yeah. That's true. Uh, and I think that's part of the reason that it was uh, movies in a play. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, it's just there. I mean, there are certain iconic sort of gaming tropes that don't exist in those kinds of stories. You know, I, the, the the fantasy elements uh, weren't there. Uh, the concept of a party isn't there uh, in any of these stories because they're almost all singular character focused. Um, and, and in fact, uh, Doctor No, which is the one I actually enjoyed the most. Um, Focuses on one character, right? But but at least it has the action adventure thing going yep. on, right? Uh, which you know a lot more action, a lot more combat, uh, which a lot of my role playing games have, right? And so so I was able to to read that one, and I probably pulled more out of that one than I did out of the other two combined. Compared to Casablanca, which is pretty much a character based story. Yeah, although or, although there were things out of out of Casablanca I enjoyed as well. Um, it didn't twist me around nearly and confuse me as much as Hamlet did. And I think that's that's not uh, a function of the analysis, but a function of um, the actual story of Hamlet just being deeper layered. And maybe maybe if it had even gone in a different order, you know, do Hamlet's hit points or do Hamlet last in Hamlet's hit points, so I'd have a chance to sort of ramp up my mind into this concept of how to break it apart. But in any case, the point being. I found Dr. No and Casablanca a lot easier to break apart, and I found, I, I found a lot of advice in the Dr. No section that I really liked. Which device was that? Um, I thought there was a lot of good advice in terms of – and we actually talked briefly about this with Robin. I had this aha moment as I was reading about using foils because um, he talked – and he actually has an aside, sort of a sidebar um, – section at one point about using foils and how they do it in, in stories here and how you can do it in your game. And it occurred to me, well, I, I almost feel like almost every longstanding NPC I have should serve as some, for, some sort of foil, right? I should, I should go out of my way to try to do that. Uh, and, and that would be an interesting way of, of interjecting some, some new dynamics into my game. Hmm. Thanks for that, yeah. And the other thing about the, the newer thing... I feel there were a lot more gratification parts. I'm not sure. Well, there was there were more gratification parts that you can attach and you can f- f- can sort of uh, understand than the gratification parts that of the the past that right. if you were if you were during Shakespearean time, you'd probably be, get more gratification because it is your times, you understand yeah, yeah. these, but... Well, it, yeah. And Shakespeare's known for that, too, because he would create... And he, he would do it for different audiences that were at the, at the same play. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, you do see more of the... In Dr. No, the... Uh, the spread for the, the beat, various beats, how it's for an action, it's much more focused and much more quicker for, yeah. for certain beats can be compared to uh, like Isablanca, which has much longer period of time for one beat. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I actually, um, there, there were even some other commentaries that he was able to make in Dr. No that I found interesting as an analysis of Dr. No, not having anything to do with gaming. You know, the, some of the historical perspective of, you know, we're going to analyze this as it was intended to be interpreted at the time, even yeah. though some of the racial and, and misogynistic uh, undertones of the whole thing, and in some cases overtones of the whole thing, um, would, you know, abhor a modern audience. That, that was not the intention at the time, you know, and, and sort of some of that discussion I found to be interesting as well, outside of the, the gaming implications. Well, yeah. You're, go with your audience, go with what you have right now. It might, over time, it might not uh, evolve or be capped the same way, but it's an artifact of its time. Mm. Although it's interesting that that the newest, most contemporary piece of the three was the one with the most issues about that. Right? I mean, there, he, yeah. there was not a lot of mention about um, issues of equality, either racial or, or gender-based, in either Casablanca or uh, Hamlet, right? No, I don't remember that, you know. So. So any other things that that we liked, any bits of advice that we pulled out of it, anything that we thought was particularly useful? Well, I also like what Eric was saying about the the differences in how long, how much time of the movie was taken up in each beat. Because I think that's important in games, too. Uh Uh, You know, when you're doing an exploration or overland travel, doing too many checks in one day seems kind of like you're just it, kind of useless you're just drawing it out yeah yeah where you know you probably just want to do one or two checks uh but try to make things interesting if there's a a, a big success or a big failure mm-hmm. well then, and, oh, go, oh, ahead. go ahead i was just gonna say <laughs> but then in actual combat you want it to be very fine-grained and well, every every single action in a combat is up or down beat, but you don't have to track that, right? Because right, uh, and, and that's something that w- we got out of the conversation with with Robin was you know combats are easy. <clears throat> don't bother track it. There's ups and downs based off of how the rolls play out. Hey, you rolled well. There's an up. You rolled poorly. You missed. There's a down. You know, it's just sort of or you got hit. There's a down or whatever, right? Yeah. Uh, the the mechanics of the game sort of dictate a lot of that. I found myself through a lot of the the book sort of reading through it and thinking, okay, how am I actually going to do this in my game? Am I going to get a piece of graph paper? Am I going to start tra- charting ups and down beats as I, as I notice them just to, as, a, as a practice to see where we're at and what I should be doing and what I should be aiming for and where I should be turning things around or whatever? And I just thought, you know, that is – as it is as a DM, I want less to track, not more. <laughs> you know, that's just yeah. a lot yeah. of work. Uh, so ha- hearing uh, Robin talk about – and the listeners here will hear this um, interview in a little bit. But he sort of talked about how, um, yeah, don't do that. The whole point of this is as an exercise to practice the idea of learning about just being aware of sort of the mood of where your story is. You know, not you don't necessarily need to recognize that, oh, we've had three or four downbeats in a row. You just need to sort of recognize, hey, things are kind of down right now. Throw in something to, to boost them up. Or, hey, they're kind of riding high right now. It'd be a great time to, to ratchet up the challenge, you know, yeah. um, which is a lot more innate and intuitive. And, and I feel like something that that I probably do instinctively as it is. I just don't necessarily think of it in these terms. And now I can now I can start to maybe put it in these terms and think of it that way, um, but not dramatically add to my workload or change what I'm already doing. Yeah. It's more of an instinctive, you listen to your group, you listen to your story that's happening in your current situation and how it's been going, then you can go, you can, it's a tool to be able to help you shape your current story when you have your low or too much of a high at one point or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I was I was really hung up on this whole, how am I going to track this thing? I was coming up with little template sheets in my head that I was going to put together and put out as PDF and all this stuff. And now I'm like, no, I'm just going to sort of keep an eye out for the mood. But just be aware of the mood of my table and, and be willing uh, or have a few things in my pocket to either boost it up or knock it down as, as we go on for the night. Yeah. And, and the other thing we kind of talked about a little bit with Robin in the beginning of the interview, but I don't think it was necessarily explicit was the whole it also depends on why you're playing the game so uh some people really care about narrative and you may be a gm who cares about it or you may have a group of players who really care about it but not everyone will Mm -hmm. 
uh, so because like Robin had suggested things like f- fudging dice rolls if you if you notice the mood going a certain way, and if if you're playing in a group that like that's not what what you're there for, then don't do it. Just yeah. like just ignore <laughs> the advice. Yeah, I think I think I would be a lot more better uh, a lot more better. No, I should I would be more I would be better served. There we go. That's the English I learned. Um, I would be better served uh, at my table to track moments of each character um, getting a spotlight or or being engaged in something or whatever rather than gauging the the up or down on the fear or hope access and instead let my instinct take care of the hope and fear and inst- and focus my, my attention and my record keeping at the table maybe on more of the, okay, but how do I make sure that hope and fear is reaching everybody, you know? Um, right. Because that's, that's the real challenge that this book doesn't address, right? Because all these stories that we look at are basically single character things. And in my table, I've got five or six main characters, right? Um, so it's not hard for me. It's, it's easier for me to instinctualize uh, and intuitively think about the ups and downs, although I do need to think about it more, and this book will, has got me thinking on that on that road. Um, but it's a lot harder for me to make sure that that guy who's over there playing games on his phone um, is having the proper moments to shine. You know, is he, is he on is, is he on his phone because I'm not engaging him, or is he on his phone just because he doesn't want to pay attention tonight? And right. And sometimes it's not only just to shine, but there are times when you may want to actually give them a puzzle that you know that their characters aren't optimized to solve. Mm-hmm. And also, it does not also it does not necessarily have to be just the GM's role of maintaining this ups and downs in hope and fear and all that. If other players are aware of it and aware of the feel, and they, they can assist you and providing something and how they role play and how they interact with other characters to bring those effects in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I like doing that, particularly if I know the group doesn't care about quote-unquote winning. Because some groups kind of do. Like, they want, they always want you to make the best tactical decision. Mm-hmm. And and so, like, I won't do it when I'm playing in those groups. But uh, other groups are okay with you make the the less tactically a uh, good decision, but it's a good narrative decision. It provides an opportunity for someone else to shine or for there to be the different, like a change in beat. Cool. Yeah. Well, I think I've discussed everything I want to discuss. Anything else you guys want to, uh, you're burning to get out? Well, at the end, they have the applying the system after the two stories, they have the applying the system to your games and mm-hmm. to your session. They talk about session beats, uh, scenario, scenarios. How to take these ideas and break them down and, and use them in your game. Yeah. yeah. I found that section to be good. Uh, if anything, I wanted more of that. You know? Yeah. I've, I found the, the analysis of story to be 80 to 90% of what this book was yeah. w- with an extra, you know, 10% thrown in for, oh, yeah, and here's how you can do stuff in a game, you know? Uh, just the occasional comment within a beat analysis or, or a, a sidebar that comes up and then the, these ending sort of appendices is almost how they come off um, is, is what covers all of that. And, and I kind of wanted more of that, um, but what was there was, was good and, and, and helpful. Yeah. And... I'm I'm the long winded one here that doesn't let anybody else talk, isn't it? I'm seeing how it is. <laughs> that is fine. <laughs> you 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 you, you, you help set up the, the podcast's uh, main narrative. That's that. <laughs> That's right. But no. But any any thoughts you wanted to share on on that section, uh, Eric? Since I cut you off. No, it, it, basically it's useful to, as you said, figure it out and. After you've seen how it, they've done it for both Ham, for Hamlet, uh, Doctor No, and Casablanca, it basically be able to analyze and say, "Okay, here's how you can possibly apply it to your games." Mm-hmm. Cool. cool. All right. Well, Tracy, any other, any other thoughts from you? No. Eric, last chance. No, nothing more. <laughs> All right, then it is time to go off and talk to the author, Robin D. Laws. And we're here now with Robin Laws. Uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, glad to be back. And this is your first time uh, over the, the 
internet, right? We, we, we met you originally uh, in person. We did the Gen Con thing with the fancy schmancy yeah. microphone and the live audience and uh, all of that. That's right. But now we're here to talk to you specifically about Hamlet's Hit Points, the book we've been reading for the last two months. So let's start off uh, as concrete or esoteric as you'd like to be. Uh, what is Hamlet's Hit Points about? Hamlet's Hit Points is an exercise in laying out for the uh, role-playing gamer in particular, but you could also apply this to writing in general or uh, analysis of fiction, basically what the ebbs and flows of emotion are within a piece of narrative fiction, whether it be a movie or a play, or a, and in the case of the book, we look at the film version of Dr. No, uh, the film Casablanca, and Shakespeare's play Hamlet. You could just as easily apply these same structures to uh, prose fiction or television or, you know, an epic poem, anything uh, with a narrative. And basically the idea behind it is to sort of train gamers in particular to feel on a deep level the way that the rhythms of storytelling work so that when you sit down at the game table, either as a player who wants to do something interesting or a GM who has a judgment call to make based on what is interesting, to help you feel your way through the question of what is actually interesting in narrative, what makes stories emotionally compelling. So while a lot of writing manuals will address the issue of structure, for example, a lot of screenplay manuals will, you know, tell you even on what pages you need to have major turning points in your story. Structure isn't so much of an issue for uh, role-playing GMs and players. That's sort of a loosey-goosey, make it up as you go along. But the what do I do next, what do I decide happens question is one that I'm trying to help people internalize so that they don't just understand it on an intellectual level, but if you go through and read the analysis beat by beat of each of those stories, eventually you'll sort of get a sense of how stories work and how they play on our emotions for good or for ill in order to keep us engaged with the story. Yeah, I remember when I first, because I first read this, uh, I think about a year ago, uh, I really liked it in part because it felt like I was back in college again, (laughs) but also... uh, I've been trying to articulate the, the thought that players are not only just players, they're also the audience of the story. And it's something you talk about a lot. And But we don't necessarily always know how to, in a loose group, without the uh, a, one person telling the complete story, how to bring about those beats and stuff that, like you're saying. Right. And people will often, you know, you will have a sense of a contribution you want to make. And traditionally, we just look at it in terms of the psychology and motivations of the characters we're playing. And there are issues with that too, uh, that I address in a different game. But for the purpose uh, of this, if you actually want to think of yourself as an author of improvising with a group of people of showing up with a, you know, a ball that you can throw into the court and somebody else can pick up and lob at you and spin in a different direction or move over there. If you want to start, thinking of it in those terms of how do I make this entertaining, first of all, for myself and for the other people around me, that's a very different question than what would my character do next? Because the challenge with that is that often the thing that your character would logically do next makes sense, but isn't that exciting? So how do you look at the story that's unfolding you uh, around you in a way that will make it more exciting for you and more exciting for the other people to pick up on what you're giving them rather than just plodding along with that basic sense of, of, of logic as to what would happen because the most compelling stories are not necessarily about people just making tactical, logical, intellectual choices based on their motivations. They're about uh, people who get out there and risk big things and uh, do exciting things and are surprising. It seems like you'd be more able to construct – because part of what makes role-playing games different is that it's a shared storytelling experience, right? Um, So I imagine it would be easier to construct your story with the the tips from this book if everybody was sort of working from that same frame of mind. So so are you recommending – would you recommend that it be required reading for everybody in every game group? 
that would be a brilliant yeah. commercial move on my part to not only record, but then there'd be like an exam that you'd have to write and there'd be an exam fee that I would administer. Realistically, um, unless you've got a group of people who are really into narrative and storytelling, uh, the chances of getting everybody to read the same book at the same time uh, no matter what it is, are, are very uh, low. So I don't really expect that to happen. And even just the GM knowing the book or uh, the GM and one other player having a sense of what's going on can help sort of bring things to life so that even if the majority of the group is remaining within their character logic, which after all is something that we've done for years and is perfectly legitimate and people have had hours of fun doing that, even one or two people in the group who are thinking about the macro issue of how do I make this more fun and entertaining by using these basic uh, principles of how stories work, I think will sort of work for everyone. And, and if one or two people are doing it, the people who are inclined to do it at all will begin to spontaneously do it, perhaps not being able to articulate with the beat system that's provided in the book, and they won't be thinking of up and down arrows, but instinctively, the people who are keyed that way will begin to respond. And it's certainly nothing that I would presume to impose on everybody in a group, because not everybody in a group thinks in story terms. But if you do want to think in story terms, I would like to think that this is a great way to sort of sharpen that tool in your toolkit. Well, I can imagine a group where where everybody's doing doing it right, and, and they've got a giant sheet of paper on the wall, and they're tracking the up and down arrows, and how much fun that would not be. <laughs> um, in one of the things about Hamlet's hit points is that you want to learn it in order to then unlearn it, or rather, you want to internalize mm -hmm. the basic ideas that the book shows you in such detail, so that you are not thinking, okay, well, what's the upbeat or the downbeat in this situation. Now, you might sort of do that a little on a scratch pad as sort of an exercise, but ultimately the goal is to have you feeling that in your bones and knowing that, uh, you know, oh, we've had a bunch of uh, up, up moments, it's time for a, a down moment to get people back uh, committed to what's going on. Or I've got a bunch of information to give out. How do I give it out in the way that conforms to the uh, emotional uh, beats of... Uh, information dispersal that you find uh, in a, a story that handles information really well. Okay. Yeah. See, and I was going to ask about that because um, a lot of what's in here is it can be very overwhelming uh, to try to implement. Um, but it sounds like you would recommend don't try to implement breaking down your stories the way you were breaking down the stories uh, in, in the book, right? But instead, just try to be slightly cognizant of, um, you know, as a DM, try to make a mix of up and down beats and, and break them up a little bit. And, and when you feel like it's been going one way for a while, try to throw in some of the other and, and that kind of thing. Instead of being specific, just sort of a general idea of these things. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that actually sitting down and trying to consciously dole out particular beats or to map what you're doing in any great detail is going to be uh, deadly and it's going to distract you more importantly from mm -hmm. the already difficult uh, process of engaging with the story and paying attention to what the other players are doing. So it is sort of about uh, creating uh, a, uh, a system, but that system is just a means to the, uh, the broader end of being uh, wired into these basic, very simple ways that uh, story works. And a lot of them, I think probably you had the experience of thinking, oh, well, this is kind of obvious now that it's pointed out to me in this way, but it's a way that we're not accustomed to thinking of stories because we're just used to watching our favorite show or mm -hmm. uh, enjoying a, a movie or reading a book. And if you're thinking about all that stuff, uh, it probably means that they're doing a bad job of it, right? It probably means that you are bored and because there have been too many uh, upbeats or because you're getting too much information that you really only notice this stuff uh, when it's not working. Yeah. Well, and, and for me, because I had made the clip earlier about being back at college, I had spent some of my class time on studying this type of stuff. And what I like about it is it, to me, it provides a, a way of looking at games in a way that's uh, critical without, without the negative connotation of the word. Like you're, 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 you can pick apart your games or what, or your experiences in games and try to understand what, what made them fun and what didn't make them fun for you. Uh, without it being like you're being negative or hating on someone or, Right. We often think of the word uh, criticism of just meaning being critical, of being down on something. So I prefer that people think 
of this in terms of being analytical, of analyzing what's going on and, and what might go on. And I've also, you know, striven to make it uh, analytical without being academic or uh, or boring. Uh, right. So, you know, because it's a book aimed at role players, I have a lot more uh, freedom than if I was some kind of, uh, you know, structuralist academic to tell jokes and uh, have asides and uh, try to write in a lively manner so mm. that, you know, even though it's something that actually breaks down all the different elements of three stories with, like, charts and diagrams and symbols and everything, hopefully it still does that in a, a fun way that reflects uh, its gaming roots. So, s- s- sort of along the same vein, uh, you chose uh, Hamlet, um, Dr. No, and Casablanca as your pieces to, to break apart as examples. Uh, and I'm curious about why those three. The contrast between those, well, first of all, Hamlet is one of the cornerstones of uh, English literature. Uh, everybody knows Hamlet, who uh, knows a literature or drama at all, uh, so it's very accessible. And it is a, turns out, is about an even mix of the two major modes of storytelling, which are the dramatic, which are scenes in which people seek an emotional reward from the people around them who they care about uh, for good or for ill. It might be positive or negative. You might uh, seek an affirmation of love for someone or you might seek to punish them, which are both things that Hamlet does in the course of the play, Um, or procedural scenes in which you are encountering an external obstacle and attempting to overcome it. Uh, And that can be and, and usually is something that you are emotionally motivated to engage with, but at the same time is something that you are uh, trying to overcome in a practical way. So the bit where he escapes from the pirates or the bit where he thinks he's uh, stabbing Claudius, but in fact stabs Polonius. He's obviously failed his, you know, identify person behind curtain roll uh, to disastrous effect. And so, uh, that is a mix of those two modes, but if you look at Dr. No, almost every single beat in that film, I think with a couple of exceptions with his relationship with uh, Honey Rider, the Ursula Andress character, is a procedural beat. He's just totally engaged on the external practical realm of he has a external problem which he is attempting to solve. And then Casablanca, it turns out, even though it's got guns in a thriller atmosphere and we think of it as sort of a a key bit of kind of foreign intrigue noir um, is essentially all drama there's almost no point where rick blaine is trying to overcome an external obstacle for any uh, serious length of time it's all about his relationship with ilsa and about the big dramatic question as to whether he will return to his previous altruistic state or whether he will remain in his current state of self-destructive selfishness. I'm curious if there was ever a thought, maybe in the outlining process, as you were looking at what to what to analyze and what not to analyze and whatever, uh, of choosing anything more contemporary or more obviously connected to the RPG uh, genre? Um, I wanted it to be sort of a, at a remove... Uh, back, uh, both for practical legal reasons, right? If I was to do Star Wars, um, which is uh, almost all procedural but has some drama in it, I might uh, hear from uh, the Lucas lawyers. They wouldn't have a case, but I couldn't afford to defend that against them. But also I wanted to uh, I wanted to find narratives that were of appeal to uh, nerds, but had enough of the sort of classic construction that I knew I was analyzing something that really worked splendidly well mm-hmm. and did not fall across the, you know, if, if I'd done uh, a Star Trek movie, well, the Star Wars people wouldn't be so interested. So um, I want to sort of lead people, you know, at least a step beyond because I think it's easier also if you're, you know, if you're a big uh, Star Wars or Star Trek fan, you tend to be focused on the surface elements of that, the phasers or the lightsabers or the hyperdrive and, you know, the rules of Wookiee or Vulcan culture. And I wanted to sort of uh, approach things that did not have that level of distraction to sure. them. Okay. Or uh, for me, I would be afraid of them arguing <laughs> the whole time about yes. the analysis. Yes. People mm-hmm. would have their, their nitpicking goggles on for sure. Yes. 
Well, I didn't. I didn't uh, nitpick any of your analysis because I have never consumed any of the three pieces. So <laughs> my first exposure to all three of these was your analysis, which which is an interesting uh, approach to the whole thing as well. Uh, that is a crazy first experience of, of Hamlet. <laughs> so has yeah. that led you to any uh, greater interest in uh, Shakespeare or Hamlet or anything? Um, maybe. I'm not a big Shakespeare fan or, to begin with, um, but I, I'm definitely interested to go back and check out Dr. No and Casablanca. Uh, those will be a ton of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious um, as well about the – as, as you were thinking about this and planning this and writing it, um, the, the idea of balancing um, analysis and game advice and sort of how that came together. Right. My self-assigned brief with, with this was to, if a beat sort of suggested a piece of actionable game advice, I'd certainly include it. But my goal was not to uh, do what I did with Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering, which is all about very practical questions of pleasing your players and figuring out what each individual group wants and what the midpoint of what everybody wants and the different tricks that you can use to try and bring that out. Here I was trying to inculcate sort of a, again, a sort of an instinctive sense of how stories work. Because on previous projects, I have sort of assumed that people, uh, because, you know, gamers consume tons of narrative i just assumed that people kind of see how that works and can replicate it but discovered that that was not in fact the point so really this was about uh, helping people install an instinctive story sense which they can then uh, once you do that it's fairly easy to uh, figure out in the course of a game how to apply that otherwise uh, the book would have had to been you know full of a lot of examples from hypothetical games Mm -hmm. Uh, but again that's something that's not that that sort of example is not necessarily going to teach you how to replicate it a way that sort of a uh getting the rhythm of stories in your veins would okay i'm I'm curious uh, because we've discussed sort of the ideas of you know you're feeling a lot of upbeats maybe you need to throw in a downbeat as a player as a dm whatever i'm curious uh could you give a a sort of a more down-to-earth, a practical sort of example of how you how one might do that? Um, well, for example, um, one thing that you want to pay attention to in a role-playing session that does not apply to a work of fiction is not only what the player, what the characters are succeeding or failing at, but the mood in the room. So I've often had the experience myself of running a game for the players where they're actually overcoming the obstacles pretty well and they're being reasonably effective, but uh, for whatever reason, because I'm either creating a sense of uh, pressure and, and dread or just that they are reflexively used to thinking of their characters as uh, failures for no apparent reason that has anything to do with what they do, I will sometimes notice that people are getting discouraged. And so let's say that everybody is uh, sitting down and hunkering down and they're planning and they can't figure out uh, what to do next. There are a number of different ways that you could address that. But the sort of beat analysis way is to give them some good news that breaks the situation open. So they could, you know, let's say that they're planning their uh, pre-dawn raid against the formidable uh, hill people, uh, and then they're pretty sure they're going to fail, and then in comes a messenger with news that the uh, uh, enemy chieftain has been struck ill at a banquet. And so that immediately gives them uh, a rush of hope that they can, this is a thing that they can turn around. It doesn't immediately score them a victory. They've still got to capitalize on the fact that the uh, enemy chieftain has fallen ill. But nonetheless, they've just gotten that spark of positivity that can sort of get them out of their spiral of uh, negativity. And you can even put this in uh, any game that has difficulty numbers. You can just sort of pay attention to how well the characters are doing as they roll to overcome tasks. So that if the uh, you know, the characters are engaged in the ex- exploration of uh, uh, rubble on an alien world, and you have had them, uh, you know, they've succeeded in figuring out what the inscription means, and they've uh, deactivated this uh, ancient uh, laser trap that was going to uh, zap them, uh, and then they've uh, escaped 
uh, one of the alien xenomorphs, uh, they might be starting to get kind of cocky, which you can notice either by just noticing them being cocky or noticing that you've got a lot of upticks that you've marked on your uh, little scratch pad. And then, okay, well, that now it's time to bring in uh, a surprise ambush by one of the xenomorphs, and suddenly uh, they are no longer cocky and instead are uh, worried for the fates of their characters. So you're looking a lot more sort of broad picture view as well in, in, in games than you did in, in the actual analysis, right? Um, you know, I mean, um, there's a, a fight scene in Hamlet that every, if I translate to game terms, every single character's action was either an up or down beat. Right. right. So you're not going to break it down that much, but you're just going to sort of take the mood of the room and say, hey, things seem a little down. We need an uptick or, hey, right now they're, doing, they're going pretty strong. Now's the time I can kind of grind on, on them a little bit and throw some more obstacles in their way. Right. And the thing about fights in particular is that almost any rule set will do all of that for you. It'll give you your up and down beats as they mm-hmm. swing and miss and as their fireball goes off or as they, uh, you know, hit somebody with a stun gun or, or whatever it is. And so because of the way that uh, a good uh, system of combat mechanics works, that's already taken care of for you. You don't mm-hmm. – uh, you, again, might want to, uh, you know, change the nature of the opposition if they're uh, – getting overrun or uh, start uh, fudging dice in the monster's uh, favor if it's a bit of a cakewalk. And that's doing what is set out in Hamlet's hit points, but at the same time, that's doing something that we've done since day one. Um, It's more of the sort of choice points in the story, the non-combat situations or the things where the rule system requires more interpretation from the GM that your ability to decide whether an up or a downbeat is uh, called for at any given situation is the thing that comes into play. And then it's just a simple matter of extrapolating from there to the way, that, from the way you've described the situation to what logically might be a, an up or a down moment that might occur. Mm-hmm. Although I, I was thinking, uh, I've, I've thought sometimes when I've read this that uh, even thinking about your encounters and how, like particularly with 4E uh, D&D monsters, how when their powers go off because there are some monsters that are, are right away use like their encounters or their dailies all at once and then there are other ones that uh build up so sometimes i feel like you want to even vary it through monster choice mm-hmm. yeah and and it's something that you need to think of in particular with 4e because of the way that the the math of that system works is that there is a tendency for all of the cool stuff to happen in the first half of the fight and then there's sort of a slow attrition at the end where you sort of know where it's going but you still have to finish everybody off and so the uh exciting thing to do then would be to find a way for you know a a new element to enter the fight uh after you've sort of hit that slog and you're no longer having up and down beats with everybody doing something but this sort of becomes flatter um or and you know there are other games that are uh address that mechanically, like 13th Age, for example, which is uh, co-designed by Rob Heinze, who designed uh, uh, 4E as its lead designer, um, addresses that by making sure that it, uh, the math becomes more favorable as the fight goes on. And so you have a more typical pattern of uh, things sort of being a little uh, rocky or flat at the beginning, and then they get more exciting through the course of the adventure. And so mm-hmm. that's a, another example of someone taking a narrative structure and applying it into a rule set so that you don't have to worry yourself about uh, adding the elements that would fix uh, a different dynamic. Okay. Now, one of the things that, that occurs to me as I'm reading it and reading through this book and looking through the examples and trying to figure out how to apply it to my game um, is that generally speaking, it looks like at least from these three stories that um, good storytelling has a general downward trend. Like things get closer and closer and closer to hopelessness uh, as you proceed. Um, right. And then they, they pull it out at the end. Right. In most cases of at least of sort of a, uh, uh, escapist or vicarious entertainment, they will then reverse that at the end. And if so, if you th- you know think of your uh, favorite uh, work, of course things get uh, more and more tense for the hero, and the stakes mm-hmm. uh, increase, and the pressure ratchets 
uh, up and up because the, you don't want the converse, of course, where uh, things are very difficult for the hero in the first half hour and then things go really well for him uh, as he goes along. That's yeah. uh, not a recipe for uh, an exciting uh, film and it's not a recipe for an exciting uh, game. That uh, It's all about sort of keeping uh, the pressure on the player because in any narrative, the uh, the way that we engage with it is is through our emotions of hope and fear, and those work in parallel. And we uh, hope that uh, the hero will uh, achieve uh, victory in a well written, well constructed story, where we whatever victory is is presumably something that we want him to get. We want Hamlet to uh, take uh, vengeance against Claudius. We want uh, James Bond to defeat Doctor No. We want. Uh, Rick Blaine to recover his sense of altruism. And so whenever a downbeat occurs, that's something that moves you away from the goal and toward the the opposite of that, the thing you fear. And uh, conversely, whenever you succeed, you're moving uh, toward hope. And those are the, and that is why there is conflict in narrative. You always hear, well, a good narrative is about conflict, but you're not, the next step of why that is, Mm -hmm. is not always articulated. And that's why, because conflict allows you not only to have hope and fear, but as the conf- the, the grounds of the conflict shift, uh, your uh, sense of whether you're fearful or hopeful at any moment is also shifting with that. Right. It, it, and it occurs to me, and it occurred to me as, as I read it, and you didn't do this uh, in, in the analysis, and I can see why, because it would open a, a whole can of worms that's probably just not worth getting into. But, but it occurs to me that some beats are worth more than others. You know, uh, you can have a generally downward trend and at the end have one beat that means, hey, I met all my goals. You know, that that one beat makes up for all the downbeats. Yeah. So there are a couple of points where I did make an arrow longer or shorter. And I think it does actually specifically say that that's a level of complexity that is unnecessary to the analysis. But of course, you're absolutely right that the uh, beat in which uh, Luke gets the... uh, missiles into the exhaust port of the Death Star is a much bigger, more important beat uh, than the one in which he, uh, you know, is rescued by Obi-Wan from the uh, guy in the bar who's uh, giving him the stink eye. Sure. I just look at the the chart and I'm like, how could I be so close to fear on the chart when I won? (laughs) But it's, you know, (laughs) it's just sort of one of those idiosyncrasies of the system. Right. You you could uh, plot out the values of all those things. But what you would really find, actually, is that uh, the chart would be almost exactly what it is now. And then the last beat would be like a giant arrow yeah. that would take you all the way off the map and up to the next bookshelf. And you'd have to write in another book to uh, <laughs> to mark that. Now, I'm curious, um, you know. You, you looked at a couple of different forms of storytelling, movies and, and uh, plays. Uh, and yet – and acknowledge the fact that RPGs are yet a, a completely different medium and have its own different set of things going on. So I'm curious, what are some of the differences in medium between these things that we've analyzed and a role-playing game? Um, well, the number one thing is that we've uh, described earlier is that the – there is no separation between audience and creator, that the creators are the audience and, and vice versa. Um, you may on rare occasions have like a convention run where there are people watching something going on, but even then you're not really trying to entertain them so much as they're just spectating what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And along with that, the other major part is that what you're doing is improvised. Obviously it's not uh, uh, scripted and it's, you have no, chance to revise or rewrite. And it, again, that's why I pay very little attention to structure, because although you can certainly have game mechanisms that induce a structure the way that, for example, Fiasco inspires you to engage in a sort of a spiral of disaster, um, that uh, it is very difficult in the improvisatory uh context of a role-playing game to worry about fitting a really tight structure. And that's not so important as long as you remember cool moments at the end of the game. You're not going to necessarily focus on the fact that, oh, well, this plot thread came up and didn't really, you know, dovetail with the rest of the narrative the way that it would in a tightly constructed work of Mm -hmm. of fiction or television or whatever. It also occurs to me that our role-playing game has a lot more uh, major characters. Yeah. Um, yes, it's true. There are certainly ensemble 
uh, pieces, particularly in sort of serialized television. You'll have a, a lot of uh, characters. If you want to look at the structure of something that is a lot like a role-playing game, look at True Blood. Uh, and it's uh, no mistake that there's some role-playing DNA secretly in there. Um, but yeah, in in general, uh, single protagonist pieces are very are predominant in other modes of fiction, whereas ensemble pieces are the uh, by far the default in role playing. Right. But I, I actually I like the I really like that point about the ensemble versus single uh, because and and some D and D makes it harder because the the don't split the party makes it even more difficult because even in TV shows that have an ensemble cast, usually you'll have two or three go out and do something on their own where mm. in a lot of D and D games, it's all, it's like your five or six players are all together. I mean, even the classic D and D story of the Lord of the Rings splits up into at least three different groups, right? Yeah. Right. And, and if you, uh, and regularly, for example, if you're doing a, a running a mystery scenario, you'll have a situation where all five or six investigators go in to talk to a witness all at the same time. And if you even stop to picture that, it would be absurd, right? <laughs> right. It's like you don't see a scene where six detectives show up to uh, ask someone where their son has gone or uh, whether they saw a car uh, out on the side of the field or whatever it is. Um, and that's something that you just sort of have to promise yourself not to picture uh, unless you want to have the absurdity of the situation right. come home. And there's a a play value to that, which is that everybody gets to have their say and take part in the scene. But uh, you're right that the more that the uh, game requires you to be together, the the weirder that gets. But even in D&D, you can have everybody together for the fights, but have them go off in different directions and cut between them uh, in mm -hmm. a an urban game rather than uh, an yeah. exploration game. And uh, if they're all together in a dungeon, that sort of makes actually makes sense for everybody to all be together, where they're uh, you know they're all in the same room because it is a mistake to to split the the party up. So uh, unless you're worried about uh, you know. It, if everybody needs to have the cleric with them to get healed while they're all going off in different directions and investigating things in a city, um, that's a bit of a drawback. But uh, in other ways, the sort of structural assumptions of D&D sort of help you get away from what would otherwise be the, the problems of some of its other conceits. Right. And even in the dungeon, you can have, if, if you have a big enough room, you can have scenes within the room and just go between them too. Uh, it, sometimes timing gets a little difficult because you want to make sure everyone gets their chance to do their scene before uh, someone off in the rogue uh, triggers the trap. Uh, yeah, and, and it's it's fun to to uh, switch between scenes that have everybody in them and scenes that focus on a, a couple of other people, and that uh, is absolutely an example of an issue that you're just not going to have in uh, other narrative forms. Right. And then, oh, I remember what I was going to say about the the highly structured part. One of the one of the problems when you try to do a highly structured game is that it becomes it comes on rails because then it's really the, it's one person's story. Oftentimes, at that point, uh, you're playing through somebody else's story, and that's often I feel when a lot, you have a lot of players start not being interested in the story anymore. Right. If you are going to install a structure in a role playing game, it's more about okay, it's an hour before we're, we all break up to go home, let's have something big happen mm -hmm. rather than, you know, this is the moment where I've arranged throughout the whole session for everybody to be doing everything to get to this one particular moment and anything that diverged from that moment, I as GM cut them off from doing. And so you uh, can sort of have a loose feel for uh, when to have your big moments, but what those big moments exactly should be have to be, player-driven rather than GM-driven if everybody's going to feel that their participation matters, because otherwise you right. are just a, uh, you know, you're actually an actor in the GM script, and even worse, you don't even know what the GM script is, so mm -hmm. you're just trying to hit the right. necessary buttons to get permission to continue on to what has already been established in the GM's mind. Right, whereas in, like, in Fiasco, everyone knows what the structure is going to be, and, and you do your first act, and then you do the tilt, and then you do the resolution part. 
yeah, it really helps if you're all if you are all working toward a structure to all sort of have buy-in on that uh, to begin with. But also just and just unconsciously the knowledge that you want to have something cool happen near the end of the scenario uh, is enough where somebody will come up with something and and deliver uh, the moment that does that. Uh, the yeah. Uh, the game that I've been running recently is a, a drama system game, and that's one in which the uh, power is very distributed between the players and the GM, and the GM has only as much influence on the game as any one individual other player, really. But because everybody knows that something cool needs to happen near the end, I can now, and we've been playing long enough that I can rely on that to just emerge spontaneously because everybody, if not consciously, is unconsciously working toward that. Very good. I had, and I know we're a little bit long on time at this point, and we don't want to take up too much. I had, I had one more thing I, I was hoping you could discuss, um, and it was sort of as I'm reading a book like this, I'm always looking for what, what are the things that I can pull out and do right now. Um, you know, what are these little aha moments I can have? And one, of, one of the ones I had was going as you were going through Doctor No, and it occurred to me, oh, I could easily throw in NPCs as foils. Um, as you described in Dr. No. And I wondered if you could discuss the, the use of foils in a D&D game, uh, kind of like, like you discussed in Dr. No. Right. So uh, foil, for those who uh, uh, were uh, dazed into unconsciousness by their high school literature uh, uh, courses, uh, is a reflector, that's why it's called a foil, of uh, another more important character. So uh, in Hamlet, uh, Horatio is... Hamlet's foil because he is ultra-rational, whereas Hamlet is uh, passionate to the point of almost being bipolar. And so if you have a character in your game who's... Uh, well, describe a, a, a character that you're playing and what his big character trait is, for example. Um, I'll describe... Um... One of my I, I DM mostly, so I'll describe one of my one of my players. Uh, we have a a priest, a dwarven priest of Moradin, who leads the leads our party, um, and, and tends to be a, a little bit gruff a lot of the time. Um, but everybody always de- de- defers to him for guidance. Right. So if you've got a gruff character, that just the question is, well, how do I come up with something that not that contrasts with that and allows the player to highlight it. So what's the opposite of gruff? Well, glib. So you might have a uh, a glib uh, rich young guy show up who has to be transported from one location to another and starts to uh, drive the uh, gruff dwarf crazy by loquaciously nattering on and on and trying to charm him, which of course is the exact opposite way to get that character's uh, admiration. And so that then allows the player to do his shtick and be the gruff guy, and it will give you opportunities for, in this case, uh, comic uh, interplay. Uh, Another, you could later have that same character uh, encounter uh, someone who is uh, romantic and, and beautiful and uh, perhaps uh, give that player the opportunity to have an opposite attracts uh, love story, which they might or may not pick up on, but it gives them an opportunity to, well, what happens if this uh, gruff dwarf character for the first time in a couple of decades uh, falls for uh, someone who's completely unlike that character? So again, that's uh, an example of a, a romantic interest character acting as a foil because they not only highlight how that character is, but they give that character the chance to uh, grow, perhaps only for a short period of time, in the opposite direction. Cool. All right. Tracy, anything else? No. Robin, any last thoughts you want to leave uh, our listeners with about the, about the book? Um, well, I would just uh, encourage people to uh, uh, take a look at it and, and just to keep in mind that it is all about sort of uh, shortcutting your way toward uh, an internal understanding of how story works. And uh, if I've done my job, you will uh, read them and think about the stories that they describe. And then the next time that you are looking, hopefully not for the first time, but for the second or third time at something you really like, you will start to see those structures occur in whatever it is you're watching and then take an extra step to make them happen in your game. All right, cool. In that case, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, You're more than welcome. Thanks for having me. 
All right, and we are wrapping up this episode. I want to say thank you to our sponsor, Noble Knight Games. Everybody make sure to go check out Noble Knight and let them know that the Tome Show sent you. I want to thank our contributor, uh, our regular book club contributor, Eric M. Paquette, for joining us once again. Thank you, sir. Pleasure to be here. Available on Twitter as Eric M. Pack, P-A-Q, yes? Yes, that is correct. Excellent. Uh, I want to thank our guest, Robin D. Laws. And I want to thank you, our listeners, um, both for listening and for using our affiliate links over at Amazon and D&D Classics, available through our website. And if you'd like to contact us, you can send us an email at thetomeshow at gmail.com or call our biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME, 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. And you can find show notes over at thetomeshow.com. And that is our thoughts on the rest the finale of Hamlet, the, the third act, if you will, of Hamlet's Hit Point. All right, say goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. I'm on the wall.